Hello, and welcome to 1934 Mill City Revolt. I am your host, Kelly Cable. Last week, we introduced the Teamsters, its international president, Dan Tobin, and local 574's president, Bill Brown. The episode I wrote was much longer than I'd intended it to be, so I cut it in half. This week's episode picks up right where we left off in late 1933. Skoglund and the Duns had been organizing in the coal yards for several years at this point and were now building towards a direct confrontation with the Citizens' Alliance. This episode covers FDR's labor boards, a collection of bureaucratic mechanisms intended to prevent conflict between labor and capital. We also see how the socialists navigated the conservative labor bureaucracies that surrounded them, as well as how they strategically timed the strike. Then, finally, at last, the first Minneapolis Teamster strike of 1934. Enjoy! The year was one of violent labor troubles and strikes. San Francisco's general strike gripped the city in a death-like clutch. While an auto accessory worker strike in Toledo, state guardsmen had to resort to tear gas, lead, and cold steel to curb the temper of the strikers. In Minneapolis, a truck driver strike was climaxed by severe riots and fights between the strikers and the police with many casualties. Warfare in the streets, civic strife at its worst. As a strike loomed on the horizon, the so-called Volunteer Organizing Committee, Brown, Scoglin, DeBoer, and the Duns, had to work out two tactics, confronting the bureaucracy of both the Teamsters and the government, and then timing the strike. Although Brown had dragged the executive committee into some organizing, their conservatism would surely prevent a strike. Enough rank-and-file workers had joined the local that they could at least force the union to propose a wage scale to the employers. Cliff Hall, the business agent, had been the most resistant of the executive board, but he was now isolated in the minority. They sent the proposal to both President Dan Tobin of the Teamsters International and the Minneapolis Coal Dealers. Tobin responded on January 6, 1934. True to being a conservative bureaucrat, he stated, quote, I trust you understand the law of the International Union, which is that the approval of a wage scale is not the approval of a strike, nor does it give you the right to strike, even if there is no agreement with your employers on the contract, end quote. Even if negotiations fell through, Tobin declared, the issue had to go through arbitration, and should that fail, a strike could then be considered, but the ballot would need to be won by a two-thirds majority. Even then, it should only be taken in a workplace where over 75% of the workers were organized. And even then, the issue had to navigate through the official channels of the union. First, the joint council that oversaw the region's Teamsters locals, and if sanctioned by them, the International Executive Board would have to approve. He finished, quote, if you go on strike before you receive the sanction of the International Executive Board, you will not receive any benefits whatsoever from the International Union. End quote. The Volunteer Organizing Committee therefore ignored their president and continued to forge ahead alone. Not only did the insurgent Teamsters need to navigate their union's bureaucratic channels and conservative tendencies, they also had to face another machine designed to prevent working class power. President FDR's National and Regional Labor Boards. FDR had created these boards back in August when the strike wave discussed in the last episode broke out following the passage of Section 7A, which carried no measure of enforcement. The National Labor Board was designed to help arbitrate disputes. It still had no power, 
having only the moral authority of the federal government to back up its orders, really. The express purpose of this board was to, quote, investigate and pass upon the merits of controversies concerning or arising out of labor relations, which may operate to impede the efforts of the government to effectuate the policy of the National Industrial Recovery Act, end quote. The National Board, which will itself come in play later in the story, was composed of 11 members, five representatives of employers, including executives from the Reynolds Tobacco Company, Standard Oil, and DuPont, and five representatives of labor, including Green and Lewis, the respective leaders of the AFL and United Mine Workers. And this side also included Reverend Francis J. Haas, the director of the National Catholic School of Social Services, who will travel to Minneapolis in the summer. The board's neutral chairman, the deciding vote, was Senator Robert Wagner. In its first six months, the board handled over 1,800 cases involving nearly a million workers. To do so, the National Labor Board created a number of regional boards to be the front line. The Regional Board of Minneapolis and St. Paul also included 11 members. Prominent industrialists John S. Pillsbury and James Ford Bell declined offers to serve, instead leaving the board to lesser-known executives. The side of labor included representatives from the Milk Drivers Union, himself a teamster, and the Printing Pressmen's Union, as well as the President and Secretary of the State Federation of Labor. Its chairman, Neil Cronin, was an official of the still-small Minnesota Democratic Party, having served as the chairman during its 1932 state convention. It was thus chaired by Minnesota's third party, the Democrats. In its actions, the board was clearly not chaired by an official of the actual party in power in the state, the former Labor Party. Like FDR, the board's primary concern was managing the social order and keeping the so-called industrial peace. In fact, this dynamic between struggling union, the Citizens Alliance, and the Labor Board had already played out twice in the weeks before in Minneapolis. While Local 574 was submitting its wage scale, the eyes of the Citizens Alliance were directed towards the strikes by the Amalgamated Clothing Workers Union and the Upholsterers Union. In both cases, the Regional Labor Board intervened to settle the dispute, but the Citizens Alliance had already recognized that the board held no power. The CA's lawyer, Sam Levy, was quite comfortable declaring to the Labor Board that, despite the law, it would never recognize the union and that they, quote, had nothing to arbitrate and nothing to discuss. Accordingly, the Labor Board ordered both unions to call off their strikes. The board had hedged, ordering the companies to rehire the strikers and pay higher wages, but the companies simply refused. When the unions won and board ordered elections in most of the workplaces, the CA employers, again, simply refused to recognize them. Section 7A may have helped galvanize a reawakening labor movement, but the Citizens Alliance had shown it to be what it was, words on paper. Thus, when the Citizens Alliance heard rumors of organizing in the coal yards, there was no reason for them to suspect that the situation would develop any differently. The workers might strike, the board would try to find some middle ground, and the Citizens Alliance would keep true to its principles, crush the strike, and continue its reign over the city of Minneapolis. In January of 1934, the secretary of the Regional Labor Board had also heard rumors of the strike among the coal drivers. He feared that should it occur, other unions would strike in sympathy. Hoping to head off the disturbance, the board invited union organizers and the coal delivery companies to a joint meeting on January 5th on matters of union recognition, wages, and working conditions. Among its attendees were Bill Brown and Ray Dunn, as well as three representatives of the coal dealers, 
including the secretary of the Twin City Coal Exchange, the local trade association. He was charged with reaching an agreement among the city's coal dealers, but failed. He thus advised the board that agreements would have to be made between the union and the individual companies. The board organized a second meeting on January 16th of union officials and 30 coal dealers to discuss local 574's proposed wage scales that they had already sent to Tobin a couple of weeks before. The coal dealers discussed it amongst themselves for a week. At the third meeting on January 23rd, the coal dealers had agreed to a wage scale under the advice of the Citizens Alliance to be effective February 1st. However, they refused to meet with any member of the union. Instead, they would negotiate only with the labor board. The employer's denial of union recognition to Locals 574 set the course of 1934. The labor board offered to hold and supervise elections in the coal yards, but Brown and Dunn thought this was not enough. The primary issue was recognition of the union and collective bargaining, not wage scales or working conditions alone. The coal delivery companies contended that 574 was not legally authorized to represent all of their employees, nor would they have the support among the workers to do so. To reject the board's offer was then risky on the part of Brown and Dunn. The board itself considered the wage scale satisfactory and thought many workers might too. But such a compromise did nothing to build working class power, wouldn't prevent wage cuts in the future, and it did not lay down the foundation for future struggle. Revolution was not forthcoming, but the Minneapolis working class needed to strike a blow against the Citizens' Alliance. No union had won a fight in two decades. A victory, of even a small size, could establish the forward momentum that the city's working class direly needed. Thus, while the Trotskyists' ultimate goal was a social revolution and the overthrow of capitalism, their immediate goal was to convince workers that one was necessary. Before even that, though, the socialists had to meet workers at their current understanding of the political and economic situation. The socialists had to convince the broader working class that a strike against the employers could be won, and that labor's defeats were due to the misleadership of the AFL, the Democratic Party, and even the Farmer Labor Party. However, they could not outright attack the union's bureaucrats or the parties, and so far they had avoided doing so. They did not want to give off the false impression that their primary goal was to make themselves the next union bureaucrats. The tactic instead was to flank them, as they so far had done, force the conservative bureaucrats into a position in which they would have to pick a side. The conservatives' usual demeanor was to work with the employers, but if their social base, the rank and file, struck, their hands would be tied. In the words of Farrell Dobbs, quote, the indicated tactic was to aim the workers' fire straight at the employers and catch the union bureaucrats in the middle. If they didn't react positively, they would stand discredited, end quote. The point was to make every institution that stood in the way of Local 574 face the power of a militant working class. This was the philosophy and practice of the Trotskyists for the duration of our story. Once having gone through the motions of law and bureaucracy, and knowing they needed a strike in order to win, the organizers had to properly time it. Because coal was used for heating homes and buildings, the number of coal orders varied with the temperature, and so did workers' pay. A strike thus had to occur within the dead of winter. Due to the Depression, few could afford to stockpile coal, instead purchasing supplies as it was needed. This meant that a strike could put the employers in a tough position within a matter of days. But this being Minnesota, the weather was unpredictable. The winter so far had been warm. It cooled again in mid to late January, 
but unsurprisingly, the snow began to melt at month's end. But on the night of February 1st, the temperature fell below zero. That night was the culmination of all of the organizing work. Brown, Frosig, and the organizing committee had continued to make successful demands upon the rest of the executive board to ramp up agitation. Miles Dunn was hired by the Teamsters to organize a rally and print the leaflets advertising it for that night. 600 of the estimated 1,000 coal yard workers showed. Out-of-touch Teamster bureaucrats warned workers that they would be defeated in a strike. The hundreds of workers who had shown up expecting to join the union and authorize a strike, not see their demands blocked by officials, stormed out in anger. Brown and the Trotskyists devised a way to flank the officials by calling for a meeting on the weekend, figuring, correctly, that the bureaucrats would not attend a meeting outside their work schedule. At the second meeting, with far lower attendance, 34 coal workers unanimously endorsed a citywide coal yard strike for Wednesday, February 7th, should negotiations fail. The Labor Board made a last-ditch effort to avert the clash, calling a meeting on February 3rd. But the coal drivers not only refused to recognize the union, they refused to even speak with Bill Brown. Their spokesman, a member of the Citizens Alliance Board of Directors, told the board, quote, Mr. Brown means just exactly nothing to me, end quote. This position was not necessarily unanimous among the coal dealers, but the Citizens Alliance forced the issue. In response, Brown declared, quote, When the bosses threw our demands into the wastebasket, we went to the Teamsters Council for permission to strike. I said, Hell, if we lose, we're no worse off than we were. This is no union we've got now anyway. But if we win, it will be like a red flag to a bull. The workers will come to us, and we can organize the whole damn industry. End quote. The union and the employers were therefore deadlocked. On Wednesday, February 7th, 7 a.m., the first strike of 1934 began. The strike hit the city like a whirlwind. Militant from its first moment, hundreds of strikers shut down over 95% of the coal yards within hours. They had caught the employers and the city completely unawares. In the days before the strike, the Volunteer Organizing Committee had transformed into a strike committee that commanded the picketing. They had devised maps showing the locations of the city's 62 yards and provided mimeographed instructions to send the strike captains. The strikers concentrated their forces at the largest coal yards, maintaining single lines at the smaller ones. Picket captains kept in telephone contact with the central committee so that strikers could be moved about the city as needed. To keep up morale, they hosted a nightly meeting to keep workers and sympathizers updated and discuss tactics. They also did not leave the entire city without coal. From a single yard they controlled, with Ray Dunn as waymaster, the strikers delivered coal to the families on government relief, orphanages, and to the city's municipal hospitals. The Minneapolis Police Department attempted to remove the strikers from one of the larger coal yards, but they were no match for the citywide militancy on display. As truck driver Quis Moe exclaimed later, quote, We went out and tied up the town. I just got like a fanatic, like a religion. I didn't care what happened. In the heat of the action, a rank-and-file striker proposed a tactic of enormous consequence, the cruising picket squads. Although there were large coal yards, the situation overall did not reflect the typical industrial strike in which all workers, machines, and product were housed within a single facility. Instead, there were 62 coal yards distributed throughout the city, and this is difficult to manage. Thus, this was not an industrial strike, but a logistical strike. 
This scenario offered one advantage to the workers, as it was more difficult for employers to hire strike breakers if they couldn't build the fortresses and stockades as the mills had done in the period that gave rise to the Citizens' Alliance. But the enormous disadvantage was that if a scab truck broke through the ranks, as happened occasionally, strikers needed to hunt it down the city streets and prevent its delivery. The cruising picket squad countered this directly. Crews of four to five strikers patrolled the Minneapolis streets, maintaining telephone contact to receive orders from the Central Strike Committee. If the squad located a scab truck, they'd block its forward movement, a striker would leap onto its running board, reach inside, and pull the emergency brake. Another striker would dump the load of coal into the street for anyone to take for free. This tactic became the root of Teamster power. The man who led the squads, and possibly who came up with the idea in the first place, was 31-year-old Harry DeBoer, an emerging leader among the Minneapolis Teamsters, a member of the Volunteer Organizing Committee in the lead-up to the strike. As the strike commenced, DeBoer was sympathetic to the socialist movement, but not organized, and hadn't taken it too seriously. His family had supported Eugene Debs for president, and quipped that the only four votes for him in the northwest Minnesota county came from his parents and his two older sisters. Thus, DeBoer was already among those most likely to work with the Trotskyists, but it was the events of 1934 that forever changed his outlook. We will meet this young strike captain, the director of the omnipresent and menacing cruising squads, again. As the strike organizers had predicted, the city was hard-pressed for coal. Large office buildings, hotels, stores, and factories were soon facing a complete lack of heating fuel. The mayor was admitting in public that the police had no handle on the situation. The CA's lawyer, Sam Levy, wrote to the labor board declaring, quote, An emergency exists in the city whereby the life and safety of the public is menaced and endangered, end quote. The coal dealers warned that the health, comfort, business, and life of the citizens of Minneapolis are seriously menaced. The labor board had tried earlier to settle the dispute, but with the strikers clearly in control, the union had no reason to budge yet. But neither did the employers, whose financial reserves could easily outlast the poverty-stricken local. But because the city needed coal, the employers signaled a compromise. No closed shop, but maybe they would entertain a union who represented only its members, or so they said. After the CA again appealed to the labor board, however, it ruled in favor of the employers and ordered the strikers to cease their actions, just as they had done to the Amalgamated Clothing Workers Union and the Upholsterers Union weeks before. The CA backed the board's injunction by threatening a concerted effort to move trucks on Friday afternoon. But on Friday, February 9th, the third and last day of the strike, Bill Brown presented a weakened set of demands. They had dropped wages and working conditions in favor of only union recognition without the closed shop. Those who were members of the union could collectively bargain, but non-members would be free to negotiate their own individual contracts. They had called out the employers on their bluff. With the union having met the employer's demand, to refuse would be obstinate. And thus the first strike of 1934 came to a close after three explosive days of militant worker action. As the strike came to an end, Bill Brown received a letter from Teamsters International President Dan Tobin. Tobin ordered Local 574 to not strike. But as Brown correctly noted, quote, by that time we'd already won and had a signed contract, end quote. Tobin's reactionary conservatism may have played only a comedic role to the strikers, but it would become hostile and nefarious come summer. As for the settlement, 
it was a remarkably unstable compromise. On the one hand, Brown, Dunn, and Scoglin figured the concessions were worth it. In addition to increased pay and a wage scale, a growing union with a victory under its belt could make stronger demands on wages and conditions later. Brown's depiction of a victory as like a red flag to a bull was realized. The Labor Board conducted union elections on February 14th and 15th, and Local 574 won in almost all of the coal yards. Hundreds of workers joined the union. On the other hand, the employers had gotten away with not actually recognizing the union. Instead, they met through the Labor Board, still refusing to meet with Bill Brown. Through this method, the employers could claim both patriotic duty and that they had settled against their will. That is, they had not lost to the workers, but rather, they had cooperated with the state during the nation's recovery. Harry DeBoer suggested later that the coal dealers may have just conceded because the coal season was nearing its peak anyway. The bosses could just not rehire the agitators and strikers in the fall. So in total, the growing union established itself as a force of working-class power, but it remained unrecognized by the employers. Furthermore, the union and the employers both recognized the weakness of the labor board. Instead of enforcing anything upon them, they made use of the board to make strategic demands upon the other side. On February 19th, the Citizens Alliance made sure the workers knew where they stood, publishing their Uniform Employment Relations Policy. It stated that, quote, No contract will be signed with any labor union or committee, whether or not the closed union shop is demanded. Supervision of the hiring and discharging of employees shall continue to be vested solely in the management and not to be subject to the approval of committee representing employees. Employees to be engaged, retained, or discharged solely on the base of merit, end quote. They threw a bone to the workers, saying they would, quote, give courteous recognition to employees, listen to all grievances, and give due consideration to their welfare, in an effort to promote fair dealing and harmonious employment relations, end quote. Needless to say, this was not the case. But the employers rejected recognition of the union, prevented a formal grievance process, and prohibited the seniority system. Instead, they would continue to treat workers as individuals, oppose unions as disruptors of industrial peace, and uphold the sanctity of contracts as between employer and employee, masking the violent power differential between the two. The ideology of the Citizens Alliance had not changed one iota since its founding in 1903. What the Citizens Alliance did not account for, however, was that this was not the end of our story. A Minneapolis union had just claimed victory, albeit partial, for the first time in decades. It had not won through slow attrition, but through dedicated militancy, led and planned by experienced leaders, waged by youth striking for the first time, innovating tactics on the fly. The political and economic conditions, combined with Section 7A, had revealed widespread discontent among the nation's working class. The workers of Minneapolis, organized and unorganized, had elected a governor who claimed to represent them. As 574 prepared for the next battle, major strikes in San Francisco and Toledo would break out, forever changing the relationship between state, labor, and capital in the United States. The February whirlwind strike was only the dress rehearsal. This is 1934 Mill City Revolt, and I am your host, Kelly Cable. Thank you for listening.